Heavenly Father, we do pray that your spirit would genuinely work in our minds and hearts this morning to encourage us or to correct us or to spur us on in the light of your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, given that it's the Rugby League Grand Final weekend, it will be remiss of me not to mention a Grand Final story. And given where we live in the western sections of Sydney, it seems appropriate to reflect on the last time our local team, the Penrith Panthers, won the Premiership. That was, of course, in the year 2003, where, apologies to a few people who are here today, they defeated the Roosters 18 points to 6. Now, that is, in fact, the only grand final in rugby league that I've ever been to. I was there at that game. That was a very exciting game. And if you recall the game... Uh, It was about 54 minutes into the second half where the scores were locked at six all. Could have gone either way. The Panthers, that's the local team, uh, were attacking the Roosters' line. One of the Panthers' players put in a kick, but it was charged down by one of the Roosters' players and the ball was on the ground in open play. One of the Roosters picked it up and passed it to their winger, Todd Byrne who happened to find himself receiving the ball with a clear run in front of him, 80 metres to the try line. So he set off. He's a winger. Wingers are fast. Now, in the Penrith team, the Panthers, there was a guy called Scott Sattler, who was a forward. And uh, he set off in chase of Todd Byrne. Now, the result should have been a foregone conclusion. For a start, Byrne was a winger, uh, Sattler was a forward, and usually wingers are much faster than forwards. Secondly, uh, Byrne had a straight run to the try line. Sattler had to come across as well as, you know, he had further to travel because he had to run on the, on the diagonal path to, to try and get to Byrne. Now, if, as Sattler set off in chase of Byrne, he'd had time to pause and think, he may have asked two questions of himself. Would he get there? And if he got there, would he be good enough? So would he get there? Would he actually catch up to Byrne? And if he did... Would he be good enough to tackle him? Now, as I suspect many of you would know, he did get there and he was good enough. He caught him up, pulled off a great tackle, knocked him over the touchline and with one of the seminal moments of the game, Penrith went on to win. Perhaps one of the best tackles ever in grand final history and the Scotty Sattler covering tackle has gone down in Penrith Panther folklore. Why am I sharing that with you today? Well, because... uh, The two questions he may have asked himself, will he get there, and if he gets there, will he be good enough, are actually questions which Christians, in a far more serious context than a grand final, may sometimes pose themselves. As they look ahead in life, they may ask themselves the question, will I get there as a Christian? Will I get to the end of my life still believing, still following Christ? You know, when the world around us can, I guess, pressure in on us, Will we actually get to the end with our faith still there? And secondly, another question which Christians sometimes ask is, well, when I get to the end and I'm going to stand before God in heaven, will I actually be good enough to get into heaven? Now, look, you know we're saved by grace, not works, but that thought can still occur to us sometimes, can't it? You know, where we reflect in our lives, we realise the mistakes we've made, will we really be good enough? So, 
They're the two questions I want to reflect on this morning and the passage from Jude which was read to us help us to think well and wisely about both those questions and in fact the Jude doxology, verses 24 and 25, give us great assurance that if we're Christians we can answer yes to both those questions that I posed. So just to remind you, uh, we're in the middle of a three-week holiday sermon series where we're looking at doxologies. Doxologies, as I told you last week, are short expressions of praise to God. They're often found at the end of things, you know, the end of a psalm or the end of a prayer or or the end, in this case, of a letter. And uh, doxologies are things which encourage us to give glory to God, uh, often because of various particular qualities or characteristics or actions of God which are highlighted in the verses and Jude 24 and 25 is no exception. So an outline of the main points we're going to be thinking about are on the insert you will have received when you came in uh, from the screen behind me and firstly we're going to think about the fact that the road is hard, secondly that God is able and thirdly uh, to God be the glory. So that's where we're going. Let me read out again the actual verses which form the doxology at the end of Jude. Verses 24 and 25 read as follows. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. They're very famous words. I expect they're familiar to all of you. Uh, It's probably the most famous part of the book of Jude. Uh, Those words are often said at the end of funeral services. If you've been to a funeral, you possibly would have heard those verses uh, spoken at some point. And it's often sung. There are two tunes I can think of. Now unto him who is able to... Which is the version some of you would prefer to sing. But at the end of the service, we're going to sing the other tune, which goes, um, Now unto him who is able to keep, able to keep, you know. So it's often put as tunes and sung. So um, it comes as no surprise, because the words of this doxology are actually very encouraging and very positive. Uh, But the surprising thing is that when you look at the verses in context, They're not at the end of a letter which talks about skipping through the hillsides with flowers under our arms and singing cheerful songs. It comes at the end of a very short letter, the book of Jude, which uh, talks about the challenge which Christians are facing because of false teachers slipping into their midst and, uh, I guess, placing pressure on them to go off course with their false teaching and poor behaviour. It really comes from the end of a short letter which reflects that the Christian life is often very hard. Which brings us to our first point, the road is hard. Now during the week I I actually watched video footage of the Scotty Sattler covering tackle and I thought, I wonder how long the actual chase took. So I timed it and it went for eight seconds. It was an eight second chase, which is a long time if you're a Roosters or a Panthers fan watching the game hanging in the balance. But eight seconds is not really that long in the course of life. The Christian life, or the Christian road, is of course much longer than eight seconds. It presents far more like a marathon. Um, now, long distance running, marathon running, you know, can be really quite pleasant, yeah, particularly if you're fit. You can you know, run along and look at pleasant scenery passing you by. You might run by yourself or with someone else and you can have a wonderful time. But uh, for most of us, uh, long distance running is a lot harder 
Um, we can run out of energy, we get tired, we can get dehydrated and sometimes if we're in a competitive long distance race we might hit the wall. Uh, that's sometimes referred to in marathon running. It's where uh, you get a sudden fatigue and loss of energy at a certain distance, usually about you know, 80% of the way through the race. Now sometimes in the Christian life, it, 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 well, very often in the Christian life, it's very pleasant and enjoyable. We're surrounded by fellowship, by friends, by wonderful things which we thank God and praise God for. But you know also sometimes in the Christian life it feels like we're hitting the wall. We get exhausted, one thing hits us, sometimes one thing hits us after another. It might be death, it might be disease, it might be the loss of a job. It might be things by the continued attrition of feeling that you're being ground down by being harassed about your Christian beliefs, whether it's by family or society or the media, and it starts to get you down. Perhaps even uh, sometimes we can hit the wall because we realise that we have creeping doubts in our minds about our faith. Or perhaps sometimes we hit the wall because, you know, it sometimes can be very disillusioning when our churches aren't perfect and sometimes horrible things happen in churches from so-called um, Christians or people who even are Christians. Um, abuse, divisions, all sorts of problems, teaching which is at odds with the Bible, etc., etc. All these things can get to us, can grind us down. Now the Christians to whom Jude wrote were also facing uh, dangers, some, some of which are quite like that, dangers without and dangers within. And I read through the book of Jude and if you've got the book of Jude open it's all on one page probably in your Bibles and here are some of the things which uh, they were struggling with. Verse 4 Ungodly people had slipped in amongst them perverting God's grace and denying Jesus Christ. Verse 8 These people who'd slipped in uh, pollute their bodies reject authority slander celestial beings. These people who'd slipped in, verse 12, seem to be concerned only with themselves. Verse 16, they're grumblers and fault finders. They follow their evil desires. They boast about themselves. They flatter others for personal profit. Verse 18, there's a quote. In the last time there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. This is the sort of atmosphere in which these Christians were living, where this was sort of present and taking place. Now, there are real dangers in living in an atmosphere such as this, an atmosphere of false teaching and an atmosphere of false and seductive morals. Now, we're fa often faced with both of those sorts of things today. You know, false teaching, um, many paths to God, many gods, no God, Jesus isn't God, it's just about being good, whatever. And seductive morals, you know, in our society, increased selfishness in our relationships is often encouraged, increased selfishness in our use of our time and money is often desired, etc., etc. All these things can weigh in on us and we may ask the question, living in this sort of challenging environment, will we actually get there? Will we get to the end of our lives as Christians or will we cave in? And even if we do get there, will we be good enough? Now the encouraging truth from this doxology is that God is able, point two, God is able to help Christians with both these questions and he can help us to answer both those questions with a, thanks to God, not ourselves, a resounding yes. Look at verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, or sometimes alternatively translated, to him who is able to keep you from falling. It says that God is able to prevent us from ultimately stumbling or falling in our faith. Now if you look back at verses 20 and 21 you'll do, you do say that we actually have a role to play. It says that we should keep ourselves in God's love as we might 
wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately for Christians, if we're Christians, it's God who guards us, God who will keep us from ultimately stumbling and falling and caving in in our faith. Sure, we still sin, for which we're forgiven, but it is God who looks after his sheep and will get them to the end of their lives, our lives saved. Uh, Psalm 121, which Wilfred talked about the sort of God who looks after and, and keeps his people going. That's a great encouragement to know that we rely ultimately not on ourselves, but we rely ultimately on God to get us to the end. Now, the men's marathon at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics was quite a famous race. It was won by an Ethiopian, a guy called Mamo Waldi. It was run at high altitude back in the days when they weren't quite as clued in on the fact that high altitude really requires special training. But this guy, this Ethiopian guy, won it. But almost as famous as the winner of that race was the guy who came in last across the line, a Tanzanian by the name of John Aquari. Now, Aquari was a genuinely world-class runner, but in the marathon final at the 19K mark, there's a bit of bumping between people. He fell over and badly injured uh, his knee and his shoulder. Now, most people would have stopped at that point, but Aquari continued running, uh, limping along. I've seen some of the footage. He limped along to the finish line. He finished an hour after the winner, and uh, when he crossed the line, there was only a a few thousand people left in the stadium. Uh, It was darkness, night had fallen and he came in a long last. And a reporter asked him afterwards, um, you know, why did you continue running? To which Aquari replied, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race, they sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. That's one of those great Olympic stories which so often you hear of. Now, our following of Christ is a little bit like Aquari, but it's a little bit not like Aquari. It is a little bit like Aquari because... That man uh, had, a, had a marathon to run, a long-distance race. He faced challenges and he kept going to the end, which is, of course, what we seek to do. But it's, our Christian life is unlike a quarry because that Tanzanian got there through incredible self-discipline and willpower. Now, we need to exercise effort in our Christian life, but what is going to get us to the end as Christians is not our own effort and willpower. Ultimately, what gets us to the end is God getting us to the end. He is the one who will prevent us from stumbling and falling and will see his children over the finish line at the end. That's an encouraging truth. We see that all through scripture. Then there's the next concern which we often have. Well, when we get to the end, when we stand before God, will we actually be good enough? You see, like you can perhaps imagine, picture yourself standing before God on that occasion, which we all will at some point. I don't know what exactly it's going to look like, but we're all going to be there. There's going to be God in his glorious holiness and righteousness and there's going to be us. Now, how do you think we're going to go there? Now, often uh, people who've been Christians for long periods of time and are familiar with the gospel and know that they're saved by God's grace, not their works, older people often, I think, have quite a realistic assessment of their life, perhaps a bit more realistic uh, than than, than some younger people and um, they realise that their life has been full of mistakes. Uh, they've made lots of errors uh, which only, if only they could go back and change them but they can't and they sometimes can't help but have this creeping thought I really don't know whether I've been good enough. And even people of any age may think well when we're aware of I guess how sinful we can be down in the depths of our heart and we imagine ourselves standing before the glory of God we can sort of think am I really going to cut muster and you know, get in there? 
or am I going to be sort of, sorry Stephen, you really didn't measure up. Now, for people, those of us who occasionally have thoughts like that, which I suspect is many of us at some stage, uh, this doxology has words of assurance for us as well. It says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. It says here that when we stand before God, we'll be standing before God without fault. Now that's not because you or I are without fault. We are full of faults. But it's because Jesus, who was without fault, took our faults. It's because of Christ that we can stand there with confidence. You know that, but I'm going to remind you again because often emotionally we can forget it. I've taken somewhere over 50 Christianity Explained courses in my life and not uncommonly at the end of the course someone will indicate to me that yes, they appreciate that they're saved by grace, not works, by what Christ has done uh, and they've asked Jesus to forgive them and they're seeking to follow him but when the question is asked, do you have confidence that you're going to go to heaven when you die? They will say something like, oh, I hope so or something like that. Now, really, they shouldn't have to say that because if Jesus has died for them and they have received that gift of forgiveness, they can actually know that they're going to heaven. It's, but it's very hard for us to get our minds around God's grace sometimes. We can picture ourselves standing before God. He knows what we've done. We know what we've done. Is God's grace really going to get us through? Well, the scriptures assure us time and time again, including here in this doxology, that yes, he will get us through because we're relying on what Christ has done, not what we have done. We can stand there with confidence before God, not because we deserve to have that confidence, but because Christ has stood in our place and we can be confident because of that. But that's not really fair, is it? Of course it's not fair. It's grace. But we need to continually remind ourselves of that. Now, a story I always tell in Christianity Explained, and if you've ever done Christianity Explained with me, you've heard this story, but according to my records, I also told this story in a sermon back in 2013 here in this church, but you may have forgotten it, or you may have never done Christianity Explained, so I'm going to tell it again, because I think it's a good one. And it concerns Billy Graham, the famous American preacher, uh, visiting Australia back in 1979, doing one of his evangelistic crusades. And uh, when he was out here in 79, he appeared on A Current Affair with Mike Willisey, who was a very famous uh, Australian interviewer at the time. Some of you will remember him. And I'm 99% sure that I actually watched this particular episode of The Current Affair when he was on, on, the, on the program. And as I recall, Mike Willisey's interview of uh, Billy Graham ran along the following lines. Mike Willisey asked, he said, Dr Graham, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? To which... Uh, Billy Graham responded something along the lines of, yeah, well, yes, Mike, I do. Yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. Mike Willisey looks a bit appalled, so he goes for a bit of clarification. So, so hold on, Dr Graham, you're saying that you know without any shadow of a doubt that you're going to go to heaven. To which Billy Graham probably said something like, yeah, yeah, Mike, without any shadow of a doubt, I know I'm going to heaven. And at this point, Mike Willisey is looking absolutely appalled. Now, what's going on here? You can probably guess. Uh, Mike Willisey, at that stage of his life, I assume, like probably most Australians still do, think that you get to heaven by being good enough. So to hear some yank come out to our country and on his program say confidently, with no shadow of a doubt, that he knew he was going to go to heaven, Mike Willisey thought he was saying, I am so good, Mike Willisey. I am so wonderful. There is no way God could not let me in. 
which of course would be outrageously arrogant. But of course the problem was that Mike didn't understand the basis upon which Billy Graham was saying what he said. You see, uh, Billy Graham was familiar with biblical teaching, which has that he could have confidence because of what Christ has done and he was relying on the, the magnitude of the death of Christ on the cross for him. His confidence was in Christ, not himself. So he could sit there and say, I know I'm going to go to heaven, aware of his own shortcomings, but aware that Christ's death is bigger than all our shortcomings, no matter how horrible they may be. So we can have great confidence and assurance that when we face God, if we're Christians, if we're his children, if we've asked Jesus to forgive us and we're seeking to follow him, that we will stand there without fault, not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ has done, the second sort of assurance. So we can look ahead with assurance because of these promises. And the person who promises us is God, the only God, the saviour God, the son of God and the eternal God which brings me to verse 25 and our last point, to God be the glory. Verse 25 reads, To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Now in verse 24, which we just finished, those two things were promised. God, if we're God's children, God will get us to the end and will stand before God faultless. Now, they're two pretty big statements and promises to make. And often in life, people will promise us things and make statements to us about things. And we may ask ourselves the question, can that person deliver on that promise? Some of you may recall the 1987 election and Labor's election campaign launch with Bob Hawke, who famously said in his launch speech, by 1990 no Australian child will be living in poverty. Do you remember that? By 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. Now, Bob Hawke was a very admirable man in, in many ways, but that was a promise that he was never going to pull off. Now, interestingly, I, I, interestingly I've actually heard that that was actually not what his, his scripted speech said. His scripted speech apparently said, no Australian child need live in poverty. But we didn't get the text of the speech, we just heard what he said. And he said that no Australian child will be living in poverty in 1990. Now, of course, there were Australian children living in poverty in 1990 and according to some recent statistics, today um, 17.4% of children in Australia are living in poverty according to the Australian Council of Social Services criteria, 17.4%. That's over 700,000 children. Clearly, Bob Hawke, as, as I said, as fine a man as he was in many respects, uh, couldn't deliver on that promise. See, often we can't deliver on our promises because we don't have the desire to deliver on the promise and or we don't have the power to deliver on our promises. Yet God, the saving God, the eternal God, can. He has the desire, he has the power to deliver on these promises. So if you are feeling anxious about either of those two questions which I raised uh, in this sermon this morning, just remember whose promises you are relying on to give you your confidence. Now, doxologies urge us to give glory to God, to give honour to God, to point towards God with our life and our words. And we're urged here, it says, to give um, God uh, glory, majesty, power and authority. The reason why we can do it are there are numerous, are manifold, but the two we've focused on this morning is because of the assurance he offers us that he will get us to the end if we're God's children and when we get to the end, we will stand faultless before God.
Let me conclude. The big idea this week, like last week's uh, big idea, could equally be to God be the glory because of these and other truths. But I thought this week I might just focus on the reason we are giving the God the glory here under the phrase, um, look up, look around and look ahead. If we look up to the God who makes these incredible promises, we can look around at the challenges we face in this life and we can look ahead with confidence because of that. Look up, look around, look ahead. What a good reason to give glory to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these um, doxologies we've looked at last last week and this week and and next week as well. There are so many reasons to, to... want to and seek to glorify you with our words and our our actions and here we're reminded of the wonderful assurance you can give us as your followers that you will get us to the end and that when we do get to the end we will stand faultless before you which is such an incredible relief. Thank you for these uh, great assurances and we praise and glorify you because of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.